From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. If you assumed the athletic season was going to start quietly winding down by mid-May, think again, as this past week alone was loaded with significant developments on and off the field. On today's show, we'll be joined by FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry to discuss the unexpected retirement of the voice of the Gators' Mick Hubert, a new leader for Florida soccer, men's tennis rolling into the Elite Eight, Softball's upcoming NCAA Regional, lacrosse facing an uphill climb to return to the Final Four for the first time in a decade, baseball's hot bats, a big transfer for men's basketball, and the skyrocketing market for NFL color commentators in the PAT. Then, speed skater and Olympic gold medalist Erin Jackson shares how she went from being a bookworm in her time as a student at UF to a breakout international star on the ice. But first, it's time for the Gator Roundtable presented by Pet Paradise. Are you the kind of fan who loves your team as much as your pet? Bring your pets to play where animal lovers and sports fans collide. Pet Paradise, the official pet care provider of the Florida Gators. It's weird to have as much news as we do at this stage of the calendar. Um, but that, that's how it goes sometimes, right? So we're going to start with uh, kind of a, a bombshell that came out uh, just you know middle, late, late this week that Mick Hubert, the longtime voice of the Gators, uh, is retiring effective immediately. This was not something I don't think anybody expected. And, and Scott, I know that you've had a chance to, to talk to him as this has sort of been happening in the, the, the background. What can you tell us about this and why it's happening and, and what his legacy is uh, as he prepares to step away? Yeah, I mean, Mick, you know, when you talk to Gator fans, I mean, he is a he is a beloved figure with uh, most uh, Gator fans. And, um, you know, just talking to Mick, he's, he's you know, he's 68 years old and he said that he still feels like he he's still can bring it every day. But you could just tell talking to him Adam, that he, he thought about this some recently and he, he's at peace with the decision. He just felt that it was time. I mean, you know, it's one of those things where he said. Three, four years ago, he wasn't thinking about retiring. He thought he might go into his 75 rating. But I think as, you know, he he rec- they bought a place uh, down in Sarasota, him and his wife, uh, a couple years ago. His wife, a longtime school teacher who sacrificed so much for Mick over the years, you know, as he was doing his career, and there would be these events that she would go to alone, and uh, he would be not into pictures, as he said, as they were cleaning out pictures at their house when they – when they moved uh, recently, there were all these family pictures and he was always absent and he just really started putting a lot of things in perspective at where he is in life. And he, he thought, you know what, this is a really good time. I can go out on my own terms. He's starting kind of a, a new life down in uh, Sarasota area, uh, going to retire down there, a place where he has spent a lot of time in recent years. And uh, he said, he's, you know, he'll miss some things, mostly the people, but, Again, Adam, it's just something where I think he got to a place in his life and thought about it and felt it was time. He said his brother's been retired for many years. Uh, he's, you know, he, he shared some other stories about people he's known, uh, you know, 
how much they've enjoyed retirement. He started thinking about, well, you know what? I'm in a position where I could do that now. And I think I've made my mark here. I think it's time. And uh, that's, that's how it happened. I mean, there was no, no secret. I think, uh, you know, he said that he caught a lot of people at the UA off, off guard. Cause no, I mean, I didn't see this coming. I don't think anybody really did, but just in recent, uh, sound like in the recent weeks, he really started to think about it. And I think that's when he came to, he, he, he said he couldn't give me a exact moment when, you know what, he made up his decision. It was just something that gradually happened. And he'd been talking to his, uh, his pastor and, and some people like that. And he just, he just feels it really at peace with, I was, I was even amazed just talking to him. I was sitting there and I was listening to him and just watching him and you could tell, you know how Mick is. I mean, he's he's high wire, and uh, you have to be that way to bring those moments to life in the broadcast booth. But as I was watching him and listening to him, you could tell he was really at peace with where he is in life, and he, he just seemed like in a good place to me. Yeah, there's obviously there's a lot more to say about his legacy, and uh, we talked about I, I want to say a month or two ago we talked about Mick being on the the Mount Rushmore of the Gators. Um, and I don't think we thought at the time that that was going to be uh, that you know that relevant in this exact moment, but now it, it is. Um, I think there's more to say about that, and uh, I, I want to. We'll get into that more. I, I feel like next week, and obviously we'll try to have Mick on here very shortly to uh, to, to talk about it and, and sort of share his own perspective and, and reflect back. Well, yeah, just one final thought on that before we move on. I mean, with Mick, we will do more. I think he he'll be deserving of that, and. You know, one thing he called me off guard, I mean, he's literally, he's finishing up uh, at baseball on Saturday. And uh, this is a guy who started in 1989 at UF, started with the first football game, was against Ole Miss, a conference game in season. And he basically was an outsider, moved down from Dayton, Ohio, 419 games later, never missed a football game. Wow. He did over over 1,000 basketball games, over 1,000 baseball games. And only, the only games he missed were about 20 basketball games over the years due to conflict schedules during football season. And there were two instances for personal reasons that he missed games. One, he said, was for the 50th wedding anniversary of his in-laws in 1997. And another one happened uh, when his mother-in-law died. And other than that, he never missed a game because of sickness or any family events so I mean he's just been there Adam and I think you know you if people read the story I write on him wrote on him this week I mean you know Jeremy Foley probably said it best Jeremy was the guy who kind of technically hired him back in 1989 he wasn't AD at the time but I think he had the final call and um, he said that when you do that job and you do it right you become part of the fabric of all this you know, whatever you want to call it, the sports, the Gator Nation, uh, all these great moments. And Mick's been there, whether it's the first national championship in football, the back-to-back national championships in basketball, the national championship in baseball. He's been there, and that's what Gator fans, they connect to those moments. And uh, had a great run, 33-year run. And, I, you know, I look forward to listening to you and him maybe talk more about it more down the road. But, um uh, he's certainly going to be missed, and uh, whoever comes in next, I mean, those are some big shoes to fill. Thirty-three years, and uh, boy, did he make his mark, you know? Hmm. Yeah, no question about it. Um, so that that actually 
supplanted what was our, our top story to talk about this week. So now we'll, we'll get into that, which is uh, a new soccer coach for the Gators. And uh, Chris, I know that you've been following that closely and wrote a really great story about it. Uh, what can you tell us about the new leader for the program? The new head coach, Adam, is uh, Samantha Bohan, and uh, she comes by way of Embry-Riddle, a Division II school down in Daytona Beach, uh, plays in the Sunshine State Conference. Now, before people go, well, why are we doing hiring a Division II coach? Um, just understand something about a little bit about her background. Uh, Samantha Bohan, used to, name used to be uh, Samantha Baggett, and Samantha Baggett was a three-time All-Atlantic Coast Conference player at Duke, pretty good soccer program, during the 1990s uh, when Duke was pretty good and, and, and competing uh, against North, uh, North Carolina, which was uh, in a league by itself uh, during that time. Um, she went from playing Duke. She was a floater on the, for three years on the U.S. Uh, national team and practiced and was part of the team uh, indirectly. She was playing and practiced like on the scout team part of that, of the 99 team, the Brandy Chastain uh, slide on your knees national championship team, exactly, or excuse me, world championship team. Um, uh, she went from there uh, uh, to, she went to grad school in North Carolina and trying to figure out what she wanted to do. She wasn't sure she wanted to be a coach that did go into coaching. She went to the University of Tennessee. She was there four years. Tennessee wasn't very good in soccer when she got there. Uh, by the time she had left, they'd won two SEC titles, and she was the recruiting coordinator for that team. Around that time, she wanted to go back home and and kind of re, kind of go back to her family in Daytona. Her family is five generations, fifth generation Daytona Beach, and they had some stuff going on. She went back to spend time with her family, to be with the family, work in the family business, and really concentrate on her own family. She had a uh, she eventually got married, had three kids, and lo and behold, Embry Riddle position. Uh, the women's business opened up there in Daytona Beach. And she was there the last 15 seasons, Adam, and saw that program from the NAIA classification into Division II. They were an NAIA powerhouse, became a Division II annual contender and NCAA tournament team, and obviously learned the ropes in terms of state of Florida, recruiting, that kind of thing. So she has she checked a lot of boxes with regards to uh, knowledge, uh, pedigree, and that kind of thing. Now, you know, she enters a program uh, which for the first time in its history is coming off back-to-back losing seasons. Obviously, there's some turmoil there uh, with the uh, uh, parting of ways with Tony Amato just a year after he took the job, after Becky Burley resigned. Uh, the talent base is down. She understands all this. But if you watched her press conference, this seems like a challenge that she's up to and is excited about. We've talked a lot recently about men's tennis and the uh, the role that they've been on leading into the tournament, and they've just continued doing that. Uh, they are now into the Elite Eight, and Chris, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think they've lost a point at this stage. They've just steamrolled all three opponents they've played, uh, and now they're on the, the biggest stage, the final stage in Champaign. That's right. Uh, defeated their, their, their three opponents uh, to date, uh, four nothing, including uh, the last one, 16th seed in North Carolina, was... Uh, in a rain kind of affected or a weather kind of affected match, pushed it back. But Florida was challenged probably as closely as, um, as they had been in quite some time. They fell down 0-1 in doubles. Uh, ben Shelton and Sam Riffis uh, at court number one, even the match. That kind of left things uh, to Duarte Valley and Nate Benetto, uh, a freshman. You're talking about a fifth-year senior and a freshman. They, they came from behind. I think they were down 4-1, to one, came back and uh, – and won their match uh, 7-5, turned things over to singles, and 
kind of was uh, uh, academic from there. Florida wins another match four nothing. Now they take on Virginia team that they played at indoors beat four to two. But uh, you said at the beginning, we've been talking a lot about and there's a reason we've been talking a, a lot about this tennis team, uh, defending national champions, uh, rolled through the SEC unbeaten. Um, uh, I mentioned, I just, we're just talking about doubles. They've won 21 straight doubles points. And I think we've made the point here on this podcast, Adam, you, when you're, when you're playing a team like Florida and, and you're already down one, nothing coming out of doubles, there's not a lot of margin for error against a, a, a roster that has so much experience, so much talent and so much depth. The uh, four guys are fifth year seniors. Um, uh, ben Shelton is the number two player, number two ranked player in the country. And he plays number one. Sam Riffis plays the number is, uh, is the defending NCA singles champion. So uh, where is the weakness? Uh, the answer, there's not one. And it's funny last year, their weakness used to be doubles because uh, uh, last year, Florida actually lost more doubles points than they won this year. They won 21 straight. So now roll in a better team. And Florida is the uh, runaway favorite now. Obviously, that doesn't mean that they're not going to be celebrating a national championship per se, but they're in pretty good shape and just uh, they're really, really confident. Um, they know what it takes to win in that confidence and in that uh, uh, all that experience they have. They also have perspective. And all of that starts with Brian Shelton, who I believe has a hand on the culture of his program, uh, as well as any coach uh, on this campus right now, which is which kind of saying something when you're talking about Miles Holloway over there and what Billy Napier has been able to do with football. And, 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 you know, we can go on on Mary Wise at volleyball, but uh, maybe when we talk this time next week, uh, we'll be able to talk about a second straight national championship um, for the men's tennis team uh, after winning its first in program history, after so many years of really just being a middle of the road kind of, yeah, you get to the sweet 16, maybe every now and then punch in elite eight, uh, only twice in history had they ever been to the Final Four, had never played in the national championship round. Well, they're expected to be in it this year. They're not the number one seed for some reason. TCU is. Now, TCU beat Florida in the season opening match, but TCU has also lost four matches this season. Florida, 27-2, uh, 20, uh, uh, has not lost since uh, the indoors to the University of Texas. 21 straight matches, which coincides with 21 straight doubles points. The, ad, the advantage of playing from one point ahead. Speaking of NCAA tournaments, uh, softball begins that quest this weekend. And, and Chris, it's interesting, going all the way back to 2008, Florida has been a top eight seed every single year. And, and I'm going to say maybe even a, a top six seed. Um, they haven't even been on that eight, nine line where you're venturing into the traveling for super regional status. Um, but this year, they, they didn't quite win as many games as they normally do. And as a result, they're actually a 14 seed. So if they win this weekend, if they win their home regional, they would have to travel uh, for Supers unless Virginia Tech is upset. But it's a little bit of a different situation for Tim Walton and his team. And it'll be interesting to see how they handle it, at least step one, with a tougher regional than they're used to seeing. Wasn't the year they probably would have uh, would have wanted, obviously, an SEC play, which, you know, that's and that's unfortunate because. The SEC tournament was here last week, as we talked about. Uh, and I tell you what, the, the environment was great. Um, it really, really was. The, the, when they redid the stadium, I mean, they reconfigured it perfectly for an event like this. That The ESPN crew out uh, down the sidelines uh, with their, you know, the live on set uh, situation going on there. Just the, 
all the all the places that they that they had for the for the cameras. I tell you what, all the teams that went in um, uh, to the to the press conferences had some really nice things to say. After Florida beat Kentucky, the Kentucky coach came in. She goes, you know, I hate to give Florida props for anything, but man, they did this right. And so uh, it was a really cool experience. Uh, last week, Florida played really well in the first two games. Got Hannah Adams back after a, she missed 14 games with a with a with a, with a hand injury. Um, uh, but they ran into the buzzsaw that is Arkansas. Arkansas was the number one seed. Arkansas came to Gainesville uh, or, uh, last month and swept the Gators. Florida was ahead one nothing. Arkansas got the bases loaded with nobody out. Got four runs, I believe, in the fourth inning and went on to a to a four one win. And at least Florida as a NCA host this weekend, uh, they'll play Kinesis as the number fourteen seed. And on the other side of the bracket is Georgia Tech and Wisconsin. It's usually shutouts in this round uh, for the Gators. And they lost the one year in 2012 to USF. Um, but that's when they had some controversy in their locker room. He had to kick three, <laughs> yeah. had to kick three players off the team and what have you. But other than that, the Gators for the longest time have been dominant in this round of the NCAAs. But yeah, it will be a little uh, different situation if they managed to get out of this. And they would have to go probably to Virginia Tech to a super regional there against the number three uh, ranked team in the country. Virginia Tech, I think, is kind of like a, uh, a late bloomer. I mean, I, I, I haven't heard a lot about Virginia Tech, uh, and I've been to a lot of Women's College World Series the last few years. I don't remember them being a powerhouse. They're obviously very, very good the last couple of years. Florida, hopefully, we'll get to see them uh, up close next week in, in Blacksburg, but obviously got to take care of business against uh, Kinesis, against Georgia Tech, against Wisconsin, two of those three teams. Uh, maybe they can get out of it, and, uh, and by Sunday, uh, we'll be on to the, to the Super Regional round. Let's turn our attention now to Gator baseball. Uh, and, and Scott, you know, it is interesting. I want to say that we said maybe three weeks ago when, when things were not looking good that, you know, it's not great now, but things can change and you just have to get a hot at the right time. And lo and behold, it appears the Gators have done that. They had a walk off this week against FSU. Seems like they've got some, some good vibes going as they get into the most critical part of their season. Yeah, you know, they've turned around the mojo, as they like to say in the dugout, uh, Adam. And baseball is one of those sports where you can't get – I mean, it's a, it's, it is an old cliche. You can't get too high, can't get too low. It's hard for fans. It's hard for players, I mean, when you're going through those things. But the Gators are certainly riding a, an uptick in momentum right now. I think they've won, what, eight of nine. Uh, Sterling Thompson's home run on Tuesday night against FSU, I mean, that will certainly probably be the – as, at least as of this moment, the highlight moment of the season so far. And those kind of moments happen, Adam, when a team is kind of playing right. And one thing, you know, listen to Kevin O'Sullivan after that victory, and that kind of struck me. And, you know, they've always won with pitching and defense at Florida. And this year's team is a little bit different. He said, you know what, we've just accepted that we're probably going to have to win games more like eight to six or seven to five, like they did on Tuesday night, then maybe three to two or four to three. That's just the way this team's built. Uh, the offensive is there with guys like Wyatt Langford, uh, two home runs uh, against FSU. Obviously, Sterling Thompson's big homer. Judd Thompson or Judd Fabian, who's you know kind of struggling a little bit right now, but 19 home runs. Um, they've got a lot of firepower offensively. And if they can just continue to get some – some work out of their their starters without Hunter Barco, 
Nick Pogue come, has come on lately, got a win at Missouri and probably his best outing in three years after that major arm surgery. Um, Brandon Sproach showing that he's coming along. So, yeah, it's a team that it's making it interesting. I don't know. They, they finish up this weekend at home against South Carolina, then they have to go to the SEC tournament. Uh, but certainly the outlook right now uh, as the month draws kind of toward the end is a lot better than when, when May started. And the, the ultimate goal is to have that carry over to June and, and see what they can do in the postseason. As we discussed NCAA tournaments, also want to mention lacrosse. Scott, we spoke about it last week. Uh, we, you know, we, we said this is kind of what Florida does every year. They always get to start at home, and they generally win those games. The question is, can they break through to that next stage? Now they're going to get a chance to do it. They're in the Elite Eight, uh, but they're going on the road and playing one of the best teams in the country perennially and one of the best teams in the country this year. Uh, a big challenge uh, for them to try and get back to the, the Final Four. Yeah, I mean, if they get to the Final Four for the first time since 2012, they're going to have to earn it the hard way, Adam, uh, to go up to uh, to go up to Maryland, a place where they played earlier this season, and they got hammered up there, I think, by 10 goals. Uh, but I do think this is a different Florida team. They've matched the uh, the program record with uh, 15 consecutive wins, and you know they look good in beating Mercer and then knocking off a tough Jacksonville opponent uh, in the first two rounds, a, a Jacksonville team that – really took care of Stanford in a, you know, a game that a lot of people thought Stanford would win in Gainesville, but Jacksonville ended up getting the win. And then of course they, they played the Gators, uh, I think for the second time uh, in about two weeks. And again, a tough match, but Florida prevailed. And, you know, Adam, I, it, it's, it, they're at a place where we, you know, kind of similar to talking about baseball, you know, it, it's a program that it had some moments early in the season where you didn't know, what kind of team this was going to be. But in retrospect, I mean, they really front-loaded their schedule with some tough opponents this season for this time of year. And one of those opponents was at Maryland, and it did work out for them back then uh, a couple months ago. But again, they're playing better than they were then. I think they've got a better identity. Um, can they go up there and win? Who knows? Like I said, it's going to be a really difficult match for them. But if they do, uh, you could probably mark it as maybe the biggest win in program history. Uh, and then to get back to the Final Four, uh, something they've been working on a decade, uh, that would have them you know, you, in contention. Certainly, if you can get past Maryland, you would think they could handle about anybody at that point. So a lot of ifs uh, at the moment, but at least it's, I think it's more of an interesting matchup than uh, we would have been talking about a couple months ago. We've talked about a lot of teams that are in the most important part of their seasons, one that is in the off-season cycle, but maybe given the realities of the transfer portal, just as important is, of course, men's basketball. And uh, Chris, I know we've talked about the portal and some of the names that have come through, and I know that, that Todd Golden and his staff got a really big one. They're very excited about this past week. Yeah, last week they got a commitment from um, St. Bonaventure point guard uh, Kyle Lofton. You could probably make a case that he that he was one of the top point guards uh, in the transfer portal this year. If you just, if you just look strictly um, at his pedigree, this is a guy. He's averaged thirteen point nine points, five point two assists, and three point zero rebounds, one point six steals per game for his career. And one of the more impressive things about him is that he's also averaging thirty eight point one minutes a game for his career. And we're talking about one hundred and sixteen career games. And we're talking about 116 games with 116 career starts also. So 
whether he was a freshman making the All-Atlantic 10 rookie team, whether he was a first-team All-Conference player as a sophomore and a junior. This past year as a senior, he made a, he was third-team All-Conference, but he, was, he had some injuries early, or excuse me, in midseason that kind of kept him on the sideline, probably hurt his, uh, his uh, postseason you know, accolade status. But it didn't hurt the, uh, the Bonnies from going on a little bit of a run. I think they beat Colorado, they beat Oklahoma, and they beat Virginia uh, to go to the Final Four of the National Invitational Tournament. Uh, where they ultimately lost to Xavier, the team that ended Florida's season. But um, this is a guy who scored over 1,600 points for his career. He has over 600 assists. I made a point in my uh, story. 604 assists. That's about 40 more than um, Chris Chioza had. He's the all-time Gator career assist leader. Hmm. Uh, now, Chris Chioza didn't start every game of his career, but I'm just trying to put in perspective that this guy's very, very productive. Now, if you want to ding him on something, you can ding him on shooting. He's not a great shooter. Career-wise, I think he's around 28% from the three-point line. Um, Florida was not a good three-point shooting team last year, uh, the, the worst three-point shooting team in program history, actually. So wow. he, they didn't bring him here for that. They brought him here to facilitate, and he's going to facilitate to Colin Castleton. He's going to facilitate to Kowasi Reeves. He's going to facilitate to some of these other uh, new guys that are coming in, uh, wing players and what have you. But uh, Florida's now at 11 out of 13 scholarships. They're still on the look for a couple. Um, doesn't mean they have to get a couple, but I think in a perfect world, uh, they add another guard and add another big. It'd be nice to get a, uh, a guard with some, with some shooting pedigree, I think. Uh, not a lot of them out there in May, even in the transfer portal, what would have you, but uh, in Kyle Lofton, the Gators have marked a, a box that kind of been missing last couple of years. Because if you think about it, this past year, Tyree Appleby is not a true point guard. Uh, he's more of a, a scoring point guard. That's his mentality. You can make the same case the year before with uh, with Trey Mann. So this is really the first true point guard um, who will be able to, to run the offense for a Florida team since Andrew Nemhard was here. Put it down. Kyle Lofton will have the ball. Uh, we'll be bringing up the ball for the Gators uh, uh, from the very first game this season. I want to move on to this week's PAT, which uh, it, it takes on a little bit of a, a different resonance after the, the news we shared at the top of this about Mick Hubert. I thought of this question actually a week ago when it came out that Tom Brady was going to be paid I by some people reported close to $400 million to be a color commentator for Fox after he retires, whenever that is, maybe, I don't know, in 10 years. If you had said that Tom, that Mick Hubert would retire before Tom Brady, uh, that, I mean, that really says it all right there. Um, but, but my question is, because it's something I've thought about a lot lately when you've seen these crazy numbers being thrown, uh, mostly at ex-quarterbacks to become color commentators. Um, do, does this investment make sense for these networks from the standpoint of are you ever going to watch or not watch a game based on the guy calling it, especially if it's the color guy? Because in, in my mind, the reason I'm watching a game and the reason I think most people watch a game is because is it is it a good game? Are, what are the stakes? Are the teams you care about? At no point in my consideration of watching a game well, I think about, oh, well, I wasn't going to watch it, but I, I like Troy Aikman, so I'm going to watch that game even though I wasn't planning on it. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out if I'm crazy or if this is the way that most sports fans feel, is this the way that, that, that you guys feel? No, I think I'm with you. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not going to watch 
any game just because of the uh, announcers or the analysts. I mean, you know, when you think about the money that you hear being tossed out about, you know, whether it's Brady or Troy Aikman or whoever, it's like, man, is that is that really worth it to those networks? And I don't – I guess they must think it is uh, because they <laughs> yeah. hate. But as I think if you talk to the average fan or people out there who really care about this stuff, you're right. That's not something they're thinking about when they're deciding their TV options for the weekend. They're thinking about the best game or their favorite team playing or whatever it is. Um, you know, if, if I didn't have – like I've, I know when Vin Scully was calling baseball still the Dodgers. I mean, I don't care about the Dodgers per se. And the only team I really care about, the Braves as a fan. But if Vin Scully was – I was up late and – there were two or three West Coast games, and he was calling the Dodgers. I'd flip in because I really love listening to him. But that's different than me. That's kind of like just a random occurrence and not something I would plan out. I mean, I have certainly my favorite play by our announcers. I mean, we all do. Uh, you know, when it comes to curly, color commentators, I mean, like when I grew up in there when Don Dandy Don Meredith was on Monday Night Football. And even as a kid, I could – I laugh sometimes at his and Howard Cosell's. You could tell they probably didn't really like each other, and they were about as different as uh, oil and water, and it kind of made for entertaining TV. But I, it's a good question. I, I just I don't see it myself, but there's a lot of those announcers that I wish they I could turn off the volume sometimes. None of them really make me just, man, I've got to watch this game because so-and-so's on. And if Tom Brady is calling the Packers and Saints game in three years as the analyst, but the Cowboys are playing the Bucks, I'm watching the Cowboys and Bucks every time. That's just where I sit. Do I watch games for commentators? You know, I, I'll tell you what, like when I go to a bar sometimes, uh, I do like to, and they're playing music and I'm trying to watch a game, i rather hear the sounds of the game. And yeah. even that includes the broadcaster. I want to hear good broadcasters. Uh, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll gladly listen to Troy Aikman. Uh, uh, Tony Romo just w was so different in the way he he dissected plays before they happen. I think that, you know, for that ilk of people that like that, uh, get in the weeds, X and O's, inside baseball kind of stuff, uh, he's, he was their cup of tea. I think maybe, he, to me, he was a little, maybe talks a little bit too much, tells you a little bit, just maybe takes yeah. it a little more. I really like Troy Aikman. Uh, you know, the guy who everybody wanted to pay big money to was Peyton Manning. And I right. just imagine that he could have gotten a, a numbers commensurate to, to what Tom Brady got. But They're paying Peyton Manning $10 million to do 10 games sitting in his living to, room to with To sit Eli. there, drink a, yeah. drink a beer, and, exactly. and, and give, his, give his brother grief. Like, just, yeah. like, it's like here, here's what's amazing. When you think about Tom Brady, Adam, and you think about – Peyton Manning, and you think about some of these other Detroit. I mean, how much have you really heard Tom Brady talk in terms of talk about stuff that he's going to have to talk about? Not you know, that much. It, for the longest time, for with Bill Belichick, he had to really keep things really vanilla. Now that he's 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 gotten out from under the Patriot way, if you want to say that, I think his personality has really come out. It's come out on Twitter, and and it's funny. Um, uh, whether it's uh, now that can he be that way on the mic? I don't know, but I'm sure they had to give him some kind of uh, sit him down, some kind of a tryout or something before they wrote him a check for 375 million dollars. 
um, or, or promised him that. But uh, I, you know, I, I, I have a lot of respect for the guy um, to be somebody who's only, I don't know, you know, X amount of years younger than I am and still out there playing at that level. And now he's already got uh, his, now he's, already, now he's got his backup plan if you were right. Yeah. Now, so there, there are some announcers that I, that I don't want to listen to. I don't like Gus Johnson, to be honest with you. I just don't want to be shouted out like that. Yeah. A lot of people and, feel and, that way. Yeah. And, and that, that's fine. I mean, I, I, I have no problem with loving Gus Johnson or whatever, but, um, but to your point, uh, I, I mean, 30, $37 million a year, it's not my money. It's an investment and you are getting, you're getting Tom Brady, man. And I, I want the volume on Tom Brady's his calling game. Just see what kind of, uh, see what kind of game he's got then. He's got all kinds of other game. We know that. Yeah. So I'm not going to be watching, you know, games just for the, the people calling it. But I am going to visit floridagators.com because of the people writing on it. And that is, of course, Chris and Scott. So make sure to check out their content over at floridagators.com. Follow them on Twitter for their latest musings and news at Gators Scott at Gators Chris. Uh, gentlemen, busy week. Maybe, maybe next week will be too. We'll, we'll talk to you then. All right. Thanks, Adam. Thank you, Adam. In the 300-plus episodes we've released over the last seven years, never before have we featured an athlete that didn't compete at some point in time for the Gators. But the only reason Aaron Jackson wasn't an official student-athlete is because inline skating is not an NCAA sport. Neither is speed skating, but the latter is an Olympic sport, and unbeknownst to her, Jackson's roller skating hobby that occupied most of her time when she wasn't working toward her engineering degree from UF ultimately set her on a path to be a barrier-breaking gold medalist at the 2022 Beijing Winter Olympics, just the second Florida graduate to win gold in the Winter Games. Uh, Yep, so I grew up in Ocala, uh, just a little bit south of Gainesville. Um, Yeah, I was, I guess, a pretty big nerd, even from, like, childhood. Um, My parents were super into education and... uh, they always had me like reading books and workbooks and stuff like that to try to stay like a step ahead in school. Um, so yeah, I always thought that was pretty cool. Just, uh, I don't know, like always being really competitive with school and wanting to get good grades and everything. Um, and then from a young age, uh, I knew that I wanted to be some, I wanted to do something with like science and, and math. So I went sort of like the, the engineering route with that. Uh, and that kind of led me to, you know, the university of Florida. So uh, you, you mentioned your parents very academically inclined and focused. Where did the, the sports gene come from? Was that, was that there or was that something that, that you sort of brought to the family? So, yeah, I guess I still don't really know if I consider myself like a super athlete or a sports fan or anything like that. <laughs> I never really watch sports unless someone I know is, is competing or doing the sport. I, yeah, I guess <laughs> I'm just more of a skater. Mm-hmm. more so than than strictly an athlete. So I grew up uh, roller skating at, at the local skating rink. Um, I'm like what you would call a, a rink rat. Uh, that's what we call like <laughs> the people who, who hang out at the skating rinks on the weekends and, and in the evenings, just skating around with their friends, just like listening to music and eating pizza mm-hmm. in the snack bar. So that was pretty much my childhood. And then from there, I got into artistic skating and that's like figure skating, but on wheels. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that, I got into inline skating, uh, like, you know, racing also on wheels. I know that, that you got into roller derby as well, which when I think about roller derby, I think about like the violence you hear about and like how intense <laughs> it is. How did you get into that? And was that, I mean, was that like the goal? Was that what you started skating? Cause you wanted to do, or did that just come along the way? Uh, no, I didn't know a whole lot of roller, a whole lot about roller derby. 
I actually had a, a couple people uh, like from the inline side who had, you know, gotten started in roller derby and they were talking about how awesome it was and how I should try it. But I thought like from the description that it seemed like this super dangerous sport, you know, yeah. and I didn't want to, you know, like risk my inline skating career for this, like maybe fun, but also probably dangerous uh, sport of roller derby. So I was kind of reluctant to get into it. I said no for several years. And then finally I was like, well, uh, you know, I'm, I've got nothing else to, to lose, I guess. Uh, so I'll go ahead and give it a shot. And yeah, it was really fun. It's not like the super dangerous sport that people hear about. Um, I think maybe like, when, when was it? Maybe the 80s when roller derby was on TV. But that was more like professional wrestling where it's all scripted yeah. and um, people are flying over rails and stuff. And that's that's not really how it is with modern roller derby. It's a lot safer and uh, super fun. <laughs> So as you're as you're growing as a skater and, and you're finding these different avenues, are you thinking about that as I'm going to take this to, you know, an elite level or this is going to be a huge part of my life? Or was this just something you did for fun mostly? Uh, with roller derby? Yeah, it was just for fun. Uh, just kind of getting started. I started with a team in Ocala, my hometown. Um, and then once I got into it, I was like, oh, this is really awesome. Like I want to like, and then at that point I was like, I want to do it at a higher level. Uh, so mm -hmm. I switched to a team based in Jacksonville, Florida. And let's see, I don't remember what their highest ranking was. I think we might've gotten up to like ninth in the world. Wow. Um, but yeah, it was a pretty cool team. <laughs> yeah. Where did an Olympic aspiration come from? Like, did you think I could be an Olympian with these skills? How did that dawn on you that that could be something that, that you could do? Well, I had a, a pretty good inline skating career, um, like a few like world medals and, and things like that. And when I would tell people that I was a speed skater, an inline speed skater, they'd say, oh, like maybe I'll see you in the Olympics someday. But I always said like, you know, inline's not an Olympic sport, which it isn't. Uh, it's not part of the Olympic Games. Uh, so I said, you know, I, I probably won't be in the Olympics because my sport's not in the Olympics. And I knew that, you know, like the top inline skaters did did make transitions over to the ice, like over to ice skating. But I just never really saw that in my cards, I guess. Um, I was really focused on school, wanted to get my degree first uh, from UF. And yeah, I just didn't really think a whole lot about ice skating or the Olympics until after I graduated. And then from there, I was like, well, I'm not doing anything else with my life. So I might as well, <laughs> I might as well give it a shot. <laughs> So yeah, the uh, the recruiters over um, at the at the speed skating team, they reached out to me again and, and asked if I was interested in trying it, and I said, okay, yeah, I'll give it a shot this time, and and I loved it. <laughs> mm. See, I want to talk about that in a second, but I, I do want to talk about your time at, at UF because it's funny. I mean, I've interviewed hundreds of athletes for this show, and I think you're, you're the first non-Gator athlete, quote unquote, we've had. So this is usually where I'd say, oh, well, talk about recruiting and how did you, what, you know, what made UF appeal to you? Um, but for you, you know, why was UF the choice just for, from an academic standpoint? Why was that where you wanted to go? UF is pretty much where everyone wanted to go, you know? Um <laughs> I, I always thought that, that UF would be a, a great school for me, and I, I got some pretty good offers there, and it just seemed like like the best option. And also, it was really close to home, which I thought was pretty cool as well. It's like a 30, 40-minute drive from, from where I grew up. So yeah, UF always seemed like like the right choice for me. I knew it was a great school, and I was really excited about, about going there. So yeah, no, uh, no sports recruiting, <laughs> just <laughs> academic recruiting. <laughs> um, what, was, what was your experience like at UF? I mean, again, usually I'm talking to – Gator athletes who have a very, you know, they're very limited in scope by here's what we do with the team. And this is, this is my plants is what I do every day. Um, you had a, a more general student experience. What, what was that like? What stands out to you? 
Right. Yeah. I actually never went to like a single Gator ball game. Um, really? <laughs> oh, wait, hold on. I went to a volleyball game. Okay. I think my freshman year. <laughs> you never went to a football game. Yeah. Never a football game. One of my friends from high school uh, was coming up for a volleyball game and I was like, oh yeah, I'll go watch. And I think that's the only <laughs> sporting event I went to my whole time at UF. Wow. I was just, I was really busy. I had kind of a full load with school. I was taking, um, I don't know, just a lot of classes, <laughs> even in the summers. I uh, just like never really took any time off from that. And then, you know, training for, for my two sports. At the time, I was inline skating and playing roller derby. And that took up a lot of time because none of those activities took place in Gainesville. Right. So <laughs> I was either in class or doing homework or on the road. So I spent a lot of time driving uh, when I was at UF. So a lot of time, you know, traveling to the different cities where I was training, like, uh, you know, Jacksonville for roller derby, but then also like the Orlando area, the Tampa area for inline skating. Hmm. So it's funny because you know, UF is when I was there, which is a few years before you, uh, like close to 50,000 students. Right. And there's there's something for everyone. You would think, oh, you'd know, be at the rights on a Friday night. Oh, there's like a Dungeons and Dragons game happening at midnight. That's cool. They found their people. Right. Who, who were your people? What did you have? Like, it, I'm sure there's a, a skating club or a derby club. Like, did you find people at UF that shared your interests or did you have to go elsewhere? Like you were just saying, well, I hung out with uh, my classmates quite a bit. So we were a pretty small group. I was in the materials engineering uh, major. Mm -hmm. So yeah, a lot of us uh, hung out from time to time. But, you know, outside of school, you know, I didn't, yeah, I didn't really have like, like a group at UF because I didn't have a lot of time to hang out. Um, <laughs> I was always very focused on either school or I was traveling with my skating friends. So yeah, my main group uh, was the group of skaters, whether that was uh, roller derby or inline. And unfortunately, not many of them went to UF. Mm. I think I had a couple. Yeah, I hung out with a couple uh, inline skaters when I first went over to UF. We would go skate on the hockey rink from time to time. Nice. And then another inline skater came in, I think maybe my junior year. And then we would drive, uh, we would kind of carpool to the practices in Tampa together. And yeah, that was pretty much it. My derby friends were a bit older, so not many of them were were going to UF at the time. So, okay, so you said that after you, know, after you got out of school and you graduated, that's where you sort of decided to go down this route. Um, but what, what, what did you do when you graduated? You got your degree, obviously in engineering. Um, what happened next after you left UF? I just had fun. You know, I, I lived with some friends in the Tampa area and yeah, just enjoyed my time off, played a whole lot of roller derby, um, did the occasional inline race. I wasn't training super hard for inline skating at the time, but I would still, you know, kind of stay in shape and, and show up for some races. Cause I really enjoy inline racing. It's, I don't know, it's super fun. Um, so yeah just kind of traveling around for roller derby, doing some coaching around the world. Uh, just, you know, living, living the good life post school. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Working a little bit too, but, th but that part's not as fun. So <laughs> yeah, I, well, there, I, there had to be some work in there too. I mean, you got a very impressive degree. I imagine you, you used it for something that was, uh, that was beneficial for you. I have not used my degree yet. Really? No. Wow. Uh, in that year that I took off, um, I, I don't know, I had started getting some offers, but then I had, you know, the whole ice skating thing kind of in the back of my head. So when I finally pulled the trigger on that, um, I, I had to turn down a, a couple offers for, for jobs, but hopefully I can pick those up <laughs> after uh, my skating career is over. Yeah. So transitioning to the ice, how difficult was that? I mean, it seems to me, it's like, you know, there's water skiing and there's, there's snow skiing and people think they're the same, but they're actually like opposite in terms of the way you have to move your body, the way you distribute weight. 
were there, was it really easy to make that transition for you or were there challenges to it? There were definitely a lot of challenges. I, it was pretty frustrating, you know, because I thought the same thing. I thought like, these are both types of skating. It can't be that hard, but it was very hard. Uh, I, yeah, like the way I skated on, on inlines when I was on wheels, didn't really transfer over to the way I needed to skate on the ice because the techniques are pretty different. And even people who grew up skating on ice, they still have a lot of work to do when it comes to mastering the the speed skating technique because it's really, really technical. So then for me coming from skating on wheels, I had already, I had already developed uh, the inline technique. So it was mainly breaking habits. That's Mm. what I was uh, working on at the beginning. There was trying to overcome like my 15 years of, of inline skating habits to try to, you know, break them and make new ice skating habits. So basically what I did was I was on the ice all the time, like as much as I could be, because I felt like I needed to make up for the lost time of, of getting kind of a late start. Mm-hmm. So like if my team was training on the ice once a day, then I would try to hop in for any other sessions that I could. Like I would even go and skate with like the little kids in the, the beginner learn to skate yeah. classes. And <laughs> yeah, there were little kids just kind of like coming up to my knees and just skating laps around me. But yeah, basically anytime I, I could get on the ice, I was there just to try to figure it out. So the, the beauty of the Olympics is that there's people like like you. And as, as you said, you don't really consider yourself an athlete. So you weren't like a big sports person. But there's people like you who could be, you know, before the Olympics, you're just an, an everyday person. You do this thing for fun. But then all of a sudden you're on a global scale. You're in commercials. People are looking up to you. You're an inspiration to people. Is that something that you've gotten more comfortable with? I mean, it's still, it's been relatively, it's only been a couple months. I mean, is that still weird for you? Or do you feel like you're, you're starting to, to understand what that role is? Uh, it's still a little weird. Uh, <laughs> I'm a, I'm a pretty quiet person. So the attention has been, it's been awesome. It's been a lot. It's been busy. Uh, but I, I, I don't know. I really appreciate the support I've gotten from everyone. Like, it's really cool that people care. You know, I think mm-hmm. that's really awesome. <laughs> I'm, I'm really enjoying it and I'm, I'm starting to get back into training. So I'll have to, you know, back off on, on, you know, like, uh, like all the events I've been doing, uh, like up to this point, but yeah, it's been, it's been really cool getting to go around and, and meet new people and just try to spread the word about the sport. Mm-hmm. Cause if, if I can do anything, I want to get more people <laughs> in, involved in, in my sport because it's kind of small. Yeah. And then as far as like, you know, maybe people like looking up to me, um, I don't really think it's. I don't really feel a lot of pressure in that sense because I always just try to, you know, be a good example anyway. Mm -hmm. So yeah, just trying to, trying to keep that up, I guess. (laughs) Mm -hmm, Yeah. I mean, there's such a buildup to the games, right? I'm sure for, for you and the, for the competitors, it really is because you've got, you got four years to make that mark, right? And then it's there and it's gone. What's it like afterward, right? I mean, what has it been like since it's, since it's passed, um, how hard is that to kind of change your mindset when you're just driving, driving, driving to this thing. And then that thing is over for a while. Right. So there are kind of two different sides of that. Um, for a lot of people, there's what's called the post Olympics blues. Mm-hmm. And that kind of comes on because like you said, you've been driving at, at this thing for four years and then it finally happens. And then you've got this big drop and you're like, well, what do I do now? <laughs> and that, you know, that goes beyond just like, devoting your life to something and training super hard, but also the attention because leading up to the games, everyone's interested. Everyone cares what you're doing. And then as soon as the games are over, it's like, no one cares anymore. <laughs> a, lot <of> people, <laughs> a lot of people really struggle with that. 
Um, I haven't quite hit my post Olympics blues yet. And I hope I, I hope I don't. Yeah. Uh, I've just been kind of riding this wave of, of happiness, you know, ever since, you know, coming off the gold medal. So it's still been pretty great for me, but you know, on the other side of things, you know, same thing, big build up. We do the big thing. We do the event, we do the Olympics. And then it's like, our season wasn't even over yet. Like oh, wow. we still had a, another race. <laughs> huh. We actually had two races, but I, I skipped one of them. So, <laughs> so I had one race to go after the games. So the hard part for me was getting that motivation back. Like after I just accomplished this big goal, everything's awesome. I now have to turn around and, and compete again and like find that motivation to like keep training and keep working after, you know, I feel like the season <laughs> should be over. Right. So yeah, we had another race uh, in, let's see, this was mid-March. Yeah, mid-early March uh, in the Netherlands, which is kind of like the the mecca of speed skating. So I think that's really what, what really kept us driving was being able to finish out the season in a place where it's going to be a, a packed stadium, a full crowd, everyone's super cheering and, and excited about the sport. So I, it was a really awesome experience to, to finish out the season in the, in the Netherlands. Yeah. So is the sport, is it sort of like track and field in the way that they have, like you can make a ton of money doing pro track and field stuff in Europe, but here in the States, it's like, well, if it's not part of the Olympics, people aren't paying attention. Is skating the same way where in certain parts of the world, it's, I mean, you're basically like a, like an NFL player if you can do that? Exactly. Yeah. And actually in the Netherlands, that's a, it's a pretty good example. They have pro teams where, where they're paid to just train all the time. Wow. And then in other countries like Germany, um, it's government funded. So a lot of the athletes um, actually have the option to do government jobs while they're training for their sport. So they can like technically be like cops or uh, I don't know if it's only police officers. There might be more options, but I think most of them, they can train for their sport. Then they're also supported by the government because technically they're they're also police officers. Hmm. But yeah, in the United States, we don't really have that. It's a pretty uh, it's not a very well-known sport. So, yeah, it's it's a bit different on that front. Yeah. So. I always wonder what the day to day is for for Olympic athletes like yourself, and because I, I just think about during the games when they're talking about the guys from the curling team, and they're just like when they get back, they're gonna go back to their regular job, right? The the glitz is gone. Uh, in, in your position, are like, do you have a regular job, or are you, are you at the point where you have enough support from sponsors and whatnot that you can continue training the way that you know swimmers do, people that are big celebrities on the Olympic stage? I'm not quite at that point. I hope that, you know, like this year will kind of get me there, but we'll see. Uh, I think, let's see. So last season I, I had a job. I was working uh, as a freelance uh, web designer. Hmm. And then I was also, I'm also still in school. I'm taking classes at the local community college here, working on a couple more degrees. Um, wow. I picked up one in, in computer science and I'm working on one in kinesiology. So I still think of school as kind of like, you know, an extra job. And then, yeah, I had the, the web design web design job as well. But I put both of those on hold uh, this year, uh, this year that just finished up so that I could focus on, on the games. So, yeah, I didn't work last year, but prior to that, I, I was working. I always like to ask Olympians this question. Where do you keep your medals? And I need you to have a better answer than Bobby Fink, the swimmer who we had a few weeks ago, because he said it's in a safety deposit box in a bank. And I was like, that's not very, then you can't show it to anybody. What's the point, right? Wow. I've never heard that answer. That's pretty <laughs> intense. Wow. Uh, so I don't know if my answer is any better, but my medal is in my backpack. That's much better. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. A lot of people ask me if I have a place, you know, set up in my house where, where I keep the medal and, and I don't, not yet. 
just because I've been, you know, traveling from event to event, event to event, basically since the games were over. So it's just been in my backpack. It's just been traveling with me to like all these places I've been going. Is it insured? Like now I'm nervous for you. <laughs> it's not insured and it's got a, a couple nicks on it. One okay. of my teammates actually dropped it almost immediately. Oh no. Um, I came home from the medal ceremony and set it on the table and she goes to pick it up and not realize, not realizing how heavy it is. Like she just dropped it right back on the table. And I was like, Oh, well, well now the seal is broken. We've got the first <laughs> drop out of the way. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's been handled quite a bit. I, whenever I go somewhere, I, I let other people hold it and take pictures with it, put it on everything. So yeah, it's not, it's not perfect, <laughs> but it's, it's loved. <laughs> is there an exchange program of some kind? Can you like trade it out for a new one if it gets a certain number of dents in it? I hear that if you like actually break it or lose it or something, you can get it replaced. But okay. I don't know the process for all that. I haven't <laughs> looked into it. <laughs> we hope it doesn't come to that. Um, right. A uh, couple of final questions for you. You talked about all the events you've been doing and even just looking on your, your social feeds, you've been everywhere. Uh, you recently got to visit with the president, the vice president, along with other members of Team USA. What was that experience like? So, yeah, we do something called Team USA Week um, after the games in, in Washington, D.C. And, you know, I, I look forward to that. It's, it's awesome just to be able to be in the same place as, as all these big athletes, these big Olympians. And what was really cool about it this year was that we were actually combined with the summer and the winter athletes. Oh, wow. And that's the first time it's ever been that way. Huh. And, you know, I can kind of cross my fingers that it'll happen again, but I think <laughs> it was probably a logistical nightmare for whoever was in charge. So we might not get that chance again, but I've got my fingers crossed. Hmm. So, yeah, the whole week was, was amazing uh, to, you know, kind of be – be in the presence of, of all that Olympic greatness. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, meeting the, the president and the vice president was, was a big honor. It was super cool. What do you say? I always think about if I, you know, if I was next to some super fate, like if I ever met Leonardo DiCaprio, like I love Leo, I don't know what I would say to him, right? Like, what do you say to the president? What do you say to the vice president when you're in this moment? Is it just like, do you, do you kind of go blank? What, what's it like? Yeah, I think I, I must have gone blank. So I don't even remember what I said <laughs> um, with the vice president. There were five of us who sat in a small room with her and got to chit chat for a while uh, with, you know, the vice president and her husband. So that was pretty cool. Just kind of like a, a small setting sort of thing. And, you know, she talked about how proud she was and, and you know, like like what the Olympics do for USA and, and how it's this, you know, really awesome thing. And we were all thanking her for the support and all that. And then with the president, I didn't get to meet with him one-on-one. -on -one. Um, yeah. And then with the president, uh, I just met with him briefly after, after he spoke and, and addressed the crowd. And then, uh, yeah, I got a selfie with him and then he got to hold the medal and just, you know, some chit chat. <laughs> Another event you got to do is you were at the Vanity Fair Oscar party, which is something that I, I can't imagine anyone ever thinks they're going to end up there. Uh, if you're an athlete, you know, you're probably going to go to the White House at some point if you do well, <laughs> but like the Vanity Fair Oscar party is crazy. Who did you meet? I saw you had a picture with John Legend. Like, what what was that like? I can't even imagine how crazy that was. It was awesome and intimidating, you know, because yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to be that that person, like, going up to all the stars and asking for pictures <laughs> and all that. Right, right. Because, um, <laughs> you know, I really wanted to, like, meet and talk with everyone, but I also didn't want to bother anyone. So it was mm -hmm. kind of like this, this weird balance. Uh, but uh, Gabrielle Union had actually you know, posted about me a couple times and sent a couple messages on Instagram. So I was like, I definitely have to go up and talk to her. That's right. So you, I went you, you have permission for that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If there was like some prior in, I was like, okay, I'm going to capitalize on that. Right. So I went in and spoke to Gabrielle Union and she introduced me to her husband, Dwayne Wade, 
and then uh, also John Legend and Chrissy Teigen and Vanessa Hudgens. So I met all of them kind of in <laughs> all together with, with Gabby Union. And then we got that picture and that was super fun. And then let's see, we also spoke with Amy Schumer and Kate Hudson and Kate Hudson's partner uh, who actually recognized me from the Olympics, which was really cool. That is really cool. Uh, let's see who else. I spoke with Cynthia Rebo because she had also reached out uh, on Instagram. Let's see. Yeah, just uh, a couple other people. I talked to more people than that. I'm just, oh, oh, Will Smith. <laughs> Wait, are you serious? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was going to ask as a joke if you talked to Will Smith. I did indeed talk to Will Smith. Uh, we were both kind of on our way out. And his bodyguard actually recognized me and stopped for <laughs> pictures. And then he called Will Smith back and was like, hey, you should get a picture with her. Like she's she's an Olympian, Olympic gold medalist. And Will's like, oh, that's cool. Uh, he probably didn't care. But, <laughs> but he was more con- he was more concerned about other things at the time. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, he seemed to be having an OK time at the party. Uh, but, yeah, I got a picture with, with him and his Oscar. <laughs> Wow. Wait, this is, the, this is the most surprising thing I've heard in a long time. Had you seen the Oscars? Did you know what had happened when you saw Will Smith or no? Yes. <laughs> yes, I had seen it. I knew what had happened, but I did not bring it up in the picture moment. <laughs> Was it weird at all? Like, did you feel weird in any way because that had happened? Because I, I can't even watch Will's. I, Hitch was on the other day. I felt weird watching Hitch. I was just excited to get a picture, I guess. <laughs> but I didn't post the picture because I knew that it would probably be a little weird. Yeah. So yeah. I have it in my phone, maybe for, for future posting. <laughs> after after his 10-year ban from the Oscars ends, then you can post it after that. Yeah. Um, well, that's so funny. Um, well, okay, so you, I mean, you've been all over the world. You've met all these people. What a whirlwind it's been for you for the last few months. Um, what is next? What's next for you? I've, after, after you take your dog out, because clearly your dog wants to go outside. But after that, bigger picture, like what's on the docket for you? Yeah, I don't even know if she wants to go outside. I think she just wants my attention because I'm paying attention to you and, and not to her. <laughs> <laughs> She's giving me like the puppy dog eyes. Um, yeah, so actually, as as soon as this is over, I'm going to hop in the car and head to the airport. Uh, a couple speaking events in Texas coming up. I've got two kind of back to back. And then after that, let's see, I have a an event with the U.S. Speed Skating Organization in New Jersey later this week. Wow. And then next week, I'm actually going to ride in a fighter jet uh, with the Thunderbirds. I'm trying not to think about it too much because I am a bit nervous about it. <laughs> I, they know what they're doing. They know what they're doing. Um, but wow, I mean, you've had what incredible experiences you've had. It sounds like, again, this, this Olympic high is continuing to go on. So we hope it continues uh, all the way, all the way till 2026, right? Let's keep it going. Right. <laughs> um, but thank you so much for taking some time. I know it's cool for people to hear from a gator that isn't, you know, the traditional gator that we have on this show. Um, but right. the gator nation is everywhere and you are proof of that. So Aaron, thank you so much and, and good luck to you as you keep rolling forward. Oh yeah. Thank you. It's been awesome. <laughs> And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to Gator Tales wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to help us continue to grow. Be sure to keep track of all of the orange and blue action by visiting FloridaGators.com, then come back here every Thursday during the athletic season for an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Thank you so much for tuning in to Gator Tales. Gator Tales.